Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 24 of Podshots. The talented and entrepreneurial Brett Bailey is our guest today. Brett is the Southeast Asian regional brand ambassador for William Grant & Sons, the parent company of the world-renowned Glenfiddich Whiskey, and based in Singapore. He's also a master franchiser of St. Louis House of Fine Dining and Ice Cream in Metro Manila, the Philippines. In this episode, Brett takes us on a journey through his career and dives into the history of the Glenfiddich brand and what makes a great whiskey. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you, we love you, and without further ado, please welcome Mr. Brett Bailey. No, it was really funny when I was on the plane coming back from uh, Medellin to the U.S. Um, I had a couple of different plane rides on American Airlines, and I have a 90, uh, N99 medical grade mask, and the standard that you have to wear on American Airlines is N95, so mine's higher technically. And when I would go to get on the plane, they always told me to take mine off because they would say that mine is not an N95, and I'd argue back with them. And I'm like, mine's a higher medical grade. Why do I have to take mine off? They're like, well, that's just our policy. So that because it's our policy, you have to you have to wear our mask or you can't fly with us. So I'd put on their mask and then my mask over their mask. So I was wearing oh, wow. two at the same time. Just because I, I just thought it was absolute bullshit and mine <laughs> far more. I didn't want to wear the minimum. Like if I'm gonna <laughs> wear a mask, I'm gonna get the best protection I can. I'm just it's so stupid. So much political policy making. It's just they, it felt so stupid. <laughs> that is impressive, man. So you must have had an N two hundred and ninety four by the end of that. Yeah. So you add that ninety five <laughs> plus ninety nine. <laughs> like oh, yeah, yeah. We, we've had the running theory of uh, if you uh, if you drink enough, you'll get rid of it, um, and also just don't expose yourself to any option for that to actually come through. So, uh, you know, the, the the house has been um, well sanitized uh, the whole way through, and thankfully, in here, we don't actually have to worry about it too much. Speaking about that, like you are uh, an ambassador for Glenfiddich, and we were discussing earlier as we were preparing to talk to you. We were discussing about, well, how the hell does one become an ambassador for anything, really? So how did, how, how did that all happen for you? Um, uh, it's a good question. I don't know if I've got the exact answer for it because um, it was something that kind of came by a bit of happenstance over anything. So uh, it all kind of kicked off in uh, the sort of September 2018, I had a friend who was working for the, the parent company, William Grant & Sons. Uh, he called me up, I think it was like 10 o'clock on a Friday night, um, and I was at my cafe at St. Louis in, um, in Manila. And uh, he said that we need someone that can make ice cream to jump into the Glenfiddich competition because the guy, because it's a, it was a competition that Glenfiddich was running, which was a bartender, and they chose a collaborator and would create a signature serve of some description. And so this bartender, Jay, had decided he wanted to do an ice cream serve. Uh, the guy that he was working with had pulled out last minute. And so uh, I got the call saying, look, would you mind jumping in? Here's me going like, yeah, okay, cool. So, you know, I guess there's a competition happening in October. Like, we're going to be fine. I said, when is it? And he goes, oh, it's Monday. Uh, and so basically... 
Uh, and I mean, you've seen St. Louis on a, a weekend, like Sundays especially, is chaos. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's a sizable store, but it's just absolutely rammed from usually about seven or eight in the morning up until probably about 10 o'clock at night. And that's, um, that's just for anyone who's listening. St. Louis is, a, is your uh, ice cream cafe in Manila, which is actually another story entirely. I can come back full circle to that, but that, that's you're basically what you were doing at the time is you were, you were helping grow that cafe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, basically uh, my mate Ken called up, asked the question. I was like, yeah, for sure, no worries. And he says, cool, you've got two days to do R&D, perfect the serve, blah, blah, uh, good luck. And so they sent a case of whiskey down to the store. Um, Jay, the bartender came down the next day and basically we spent, I think it was like, it only took us maybe six hours on the Saturday of just playing around in the, um, the batch freezer. And the first one blew everyone's heads off because I just basically took a bottle of whiskey, pretty much up, turned it into a batch freezer um, with no idea what I was doing. Uh, and it came out and it was just super, super boozy. But um, it was, that was when I found out that if you actually do drop the temperature down to minus, alcohol will actually not burn your tongue, but it feels like it is. So it was quite uncomfortable. Um, so we played around and stabilized that and then I very quickly uh, realized that, you know, we needed to do something that was a step above that. And so Jade had the idea of putting olive oil and sea salt on this serve. So I said to him, why don't we extend that and we'll do a flavor and um, texture sort of play. So we did things like um, uh, I dehydrated and burnt espresso down, chipped that off into powder, rehydrated with sugar syrup, cooked that again, turned it into like smashed glass candy. So it was this like crunchy texture with really bitter but sweet kind of notes. So basically we built uh, for the judging crowd on the first run, we built sort of like a, a, a adult's Sunday bar of sorts. There was four little accompaniments and they could sort of experiment with that as they want. And we did really well and got through to the finals. So that was a few weeks later, did the same thing again, but it was on stage and the judges were um, my current boss here, who's the, the regional managing director for Southeast Asia for the whole company. Um, it's our global brand manager and our global brand ambassador, um, Struan, uh, came over. So uh, I'd had a chat with Ken and got word of the role being available and just made you know one or two comments and he just started swinging for the fences for me. Um, and it was just a good fit. You know, I come from a bartending background, bar management background. Um, I had brand experience from building St. Louis up as well as all the pop-ups that I used to do in Australia. Um, and when I was in Australia, I was also a part-time spirit trainer for another company that we did things like um, Patron Tequila, Buffalo Trace, and all of the bourbon portfolio that goes under that. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of happenstance, a lot of luck um, in that I wasn't actively searching for a role, but it just kind of uh, became a little fortuitous um, when it sort of jumped in, in, into my vision. Yeah, that's that's awesome. a cool, cool story. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, have you ever met someone who you ask them like what they do and they're like, oh, I do this. This is what I've done my whole life. I studied for studied for it. I grew up thinking about it and then I ended up doing it. And you're like, you're thinking to yourself, how the fuck did you do that? Because life is so organic and you kind of find yourself in situations where, and I never thought I would have, I would have been doing what I'm doing right now when I was younger. I'm pretty sure you would say the same thing. It's just like, did you, did, did you ever, I mean, cause you said you grew up kind of bartending and stuff. Did you ever think you wanted to get into that or was that just something you were doing at the time? Uh, I mean, 
back when I was bartending, so especially when I was first starting out, you know, this is going back to 2006, 2007. Uh, that was the first time I ever met any of the brand ambassadors for any spirit company. Um, and I actually started working with them as kind of like their, their lackey, where if they were doing a session, I'd come in and just cut limes and lemons and sort of run around and, you know, uh, things like that. So I was just a bit of a helper to make a bit of extra cash on the side. But my um my uncle uh, one of my uncles is um a uh, ambassador himself in the spirits game so bill is um a certified uh tequila ambassador so he doesn't work for a brand he's actually certified by the mexican government and the governing bodies of tequila production so uh, i know that it's him thomas dez and julio bermejo um, are known as like the three amigos because they're all certified around the same time basically they all push uh really amazing products that way but phil's now stepped into his own realm in that he's now the world's only mezcal ambassador where he's also government certified and his job is basically he travels when people commission him to uh, and he's the, the the sort of number one voice in, in Mezcal for, for, I guess, contributing to building that profile. So having him uh, as uh, a part of the family was brilliant for me coming through the bar industry because he really exposed me to the opportunities when he worked with brands. You know, I'd see all the stuff that he was getting up to. I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But the, the BA role has definitely changed from what it was when I was a lot younger. Uh, you know, these guys would walk into the room and it was like the rock stars sort of uh, sauntering in. Um, whereas now it's, you know, it, it was definitely education back then, but it was a lot of just like, we actually don't know how this role is going to really fulfill the space. So each company kind of had their own spectrum of what a BA was, uh, always had elements that resonate with now where it's, you know, education based, it's trial. So, you know, pouring the liquid for people, making sure they understand what it is, promoting responsible drinking, things like that. But uh, it was just a lot looser in regulation where I don't know if they had the stringent uh, reporting of expenses and all the, the sort of more admin and um, I guess corporate side of what we actually do that no one ever sees. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely looked as like, that's a cool job. Like that guy's the cool guy in the room right now and everyone wants to hang out with him and all that kind of thing. I was like, I know that I'm not that good at music. And so like my rock star aspirations from when I was 14 are not going to come true. Uh, I think this is going to be a cool way for us to go about it. Um, I mean, you know, I, from this job alone, since I left Manila to move to Singapore, um, I've, I've traveled to countries I never thought I'd go. Um, you know, did a random day trip to Sweden, which I never thought I'd be able to say, um, stuff like that. So it's been a really, really cool experience for me to, um, to be able to jump on board. And there's no looking back because there's no university degree to get into this game. <laughs> Dude, that's my dream to be a tequila ambassador. Can you imagine? Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> wild. You Brett. I mean, there's only one guy, bro. It's not going to happen. He's got the he's got the the industry under his grip. There can be, there can be two. Come on. About yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I actually did, uh, and it was with the company that I'm with now. So before I left Australia, I finished up a role where I was uh, the general manager of um, a hospitality group, um, and just decided it was time for a change. I wasn't overly happy living in Adelaide. Like it was just a place that I'd never felt at home because I grew up in the Philippines. So Adelaide's, uh, you know, capital of South Australia. I think at the time there was like maybe a million people that lived there and I'd moved from, you know, Metro Manila where there's 20 million in the greater Metro. Um, everything's 24 seven, you know, it's, it's constant noise, constant chaos. Uh, and so I was really, 
uh, eager to get back out. And I actually applied for another one of our brands called Milagro Tequila, um, which is this awesome, awesome um, 100% blue agave product that we put out. But they were hiring for a West Coast ambassador for the whole of the United States. So basically anything from San Diego all the way up to the Canadian border on the West Coast was all your uh, all your, your territory. Um, so I got through a few different things, but it didn't come to fruition for I don't know, whatever whatever reason it was from them. Um, but uh, it, it was cool to kind of see the process that I have to go to when I actually uh, got to, to doing my um, interview for this. But there's, there is tequila jobs out there. Well, I'm going to be applying for that one. Yeah. Well, West Don't leave me, man. <laughs> Don't leave me to do this alone. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's, that's a... Sorry, I was just going to ask, like, with being an ambassador, like, are you also getting commissioned out to go do work and do travel? Like, what does that like entail for you? Like on a daily basis or is it like a periodic thing? So, I mean, it's actually funny timing that we're doing this now because uh, like I'm actually now allowed to talk about it, but uh, I've also now just been announced that uh, I've taken over another one of our products. So I've actually gone from just the Glenfiddich brand ambassador to now being the regional ambassador for single malts in Southeast Asia um, for, for our, our companies. So we've got a really great portfolio. Glenfiddich and Balbeni will be the two that I really focus on, but um, I mean, realistically, I was going through a budget planning and strategy uh, stuff the other day, and it's, uh, I, I usually run between six countries. So it's Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia. Um, so our priority markets coming up have already been isolated. What it means is that, you know, let's say things go back to normal and I can start doing my job the way that uh, I'm used to. Uh, it means that, you know, uh, I'll use my December last year as, a, as an example because it was chaos, but... Uh, I flew from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur on a Monday. I think it was the, the December 2nd. So I flew up there, got off, dropped my stuff at the hotel, changed into a suit straight out and did a double, like a back-to-back -back, uh, bartender training at two outlets that were side by side and then hosted a, a dinner tasting that night. And then it was three or four venues that we'd go out and visit and just do face and, you know, buy a bottle, drink a little bit with the, the bartenders and then we'd move on. Uh, and that's with the team. It's not me hitting a bottle in, in three different bars uh, on my own. It's um, the next day, pretty much rinse and repeat. And that was up until the Friday. And then I flew from KL to Hong Kong with our, uh, our duty-free team, excuse me, uh, and hosted a high net worth um, dinner up in um, Upper House, which is a beautiful, beautiful restaurant on top of the, the hotel um, in uh, Hong Kong Island, so just down from Central. But for that, we opened uh, one of 134 bottles that were ever made of this Hong Kong duty-free exclusive 40-year-old. So that was uh, distilled in 78 and had been laid under cask until 2018. So I went up and basically it's doing taste notes and stuff like that, but that's where it gets challenging because this is a product that I've never seen in my life. Uh, and it's purely based on study and appreciation of what different cast styles will do. What am I expecting from a cast of this period? Were there any sort of catastrophic events like 2010? Um, we actually had warehouse failure where we had so much snow land on the roof that it collapsed. So it's knowing things like that that potentially could have impacted um, the, the liquid itself. And then also, as I'm talking, I'll be nosing and doing live sort of feedback for that. Plus, it was a, a dinner pairing. So that was the, the Saturday. Uh, sorry, that was... The Friday night, I then took Saturday in Hong Kong and hung out with my mate that lives there because I hadn't caught up with him for a while. Sunday was on a flight straight to Jakarta, eight days in Jakarta, back-to-back -back events the whole time. 
flew back to Singapore, did one day in Singapore where we had a monkey shoulder event um, with our friends at Tipling Club. And then the next morning uh, with a very sore head, I was on a flight to Saigon. And then two days later up to Hanoi, back to um, Singapore for four, and then I was across the Philippines. So it was, I think I worked out, it was, it was six cities and five countries in three weeks. Dude, that's nice. so much traveling. That's crazy. Yeah. How do you, okay. So this is what I, this is where we start to talk about the actual alcohol. So how do you manage that level of drinking? Cause I mean, I imagine that you're not just going to take a tiny sip every, every single thing you do, you're going to, you're not going to, you can drink with the people. You're going to tell them about it. You're going to get involved. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I'm just laughing because it really comes down to uh, like the culture of the place that I'm in. Um, you know, I, I can I've gone in where I put the hard line down with our team and just and it was actually during that um, last trip through KL. It's like I got a long month ahead of me. Like we're gonna go baby steps every every step of the way. So you know, if I had so a tasting glass like this, this little guy, uh, these hold about 90 mil. So if I pour them out, I'll always have a set for myself when I'm doing tastings with industry, especially or with, I mean actually both sides but usually it'll be a lot of me looking like I'm about to go take a sip and then kind of realizing oh wait wait I've got another point and I'll, I'll sort of ramble on about that so where the the greater consumer be it you know bartenders and bar owners or people that are just enthusiasts they'll sit there in between say the I mean right now it's five people but usually I host dinners for about 20 between the 20 of them we'd usually get through two to three bottles of each of the three SKUs in our core range out of that I will have had one set of tastings um, and normally my my biggest asset is uh, drinking highballs so whiskey soda tall glass lots of ice because it's hydrating me the whole time Usually I'll have words with the bartender before to make sure they actually dial it back a little bit. So instead of a full pour, uh, it's more about just putting a bit of coloring in there because it's just about having the, the look like we're actually participating a lot more than we are. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, that's not to say I've, I did uh, a dinner in Vietnam. Uh, there's a few of the, the military uh, generals and stuff who are, are, are quite important individuals for us to know over there because there's a lot of government control and uh, things when it comes to importation of spirits and the way that they were drinking is in an old-fashioned glass or a rocks glass you fill it to the top you slam glasses together rip it down as a single shot and if you put it back on the table they refill you because that means it's like in poker you know um, telling the, the dealer that you want another one so there's been a few nights where irrespective of my intention to, to go on and, and sort of behave and, and all that kind of thing there's just no getting out of it um, which can be very challenging <laughs> Did you not know that putting your glass back down insinuated that you needed more alcohol? Yeah, I mean, like you learn these things pretty quick, but uh, I mean, there's, there's also I, one of the first things that I ever did when I signed on was a dinner here in Singapore and I got sat with uh, a, a table of brothers at this really beautiful Chinese restaurant. And um, again, this was trial by fire. I think I'd been in Singapore for about a week. And um, they sent me out there and didn't tell anyone that I worked for the brand. They just sat me as the, the random guy that was there with the, the Glenfiddich team. Uh, someone else was hosting the session, which was great to see how he was doing it. But these guys were just bananas. It was eight brothers, myself, a guy that runs a hotel downstairs, and then two of the brothers' wives. And in the, I think it was three and a half, four hours, between the eight brothers, they went through 13 bottles of Glenfiddich 15, along with the tastings, which was 12, 15, 18, our Project 20, and our IPA from our experimental series. And then they all walked out with a bottle of 18 in a bag as well. 
are they still around today? Are they? That's that's just how they do it. You know, anytime they go to these events, that's immediately, it's just they uh, flick the switch and it's go for it. And they're the full tumblers and bang them down and the whole thing. And I mean, they were celebrating a birthday that night as well, but they definitely, definitely would have been hurt the next day. Fucking legend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of time that I spent in South Korea. When I was living there, uh, I spent, uh, I think, well, close to, I think it was close to six months, but uh, the drinking culture in South Korea is off the hook. I mean, it really is not in under any control whatsoever. Uh, and I think that's because it's just part of their culture, really, really deep rooted into their culture. Um, so guys will sit at like a 7-Eleven convenience store in the evening after work and they'll just get a table they'll have a pack of cigarettes or whatever and they'll drink like soju which is their drink of choice and this this stuff is a killer because you never see it coming it's so easy to drink soju if you have never tried um i'm sure you have brett uh but but you know like i just was in awe of how they'll drink like eight bottles each a night some of them which is insane when you think about i mean they're small bottles right they're about that big but uh but that that just two cup destroy me yeah that's that i was funny enough i was talking to someone about this uh about soju and beer um and that's my if, if i'm drinking with my mates uh, in manila and we go to korean barbecue that's exactly what we sit on is you know little in between is because I mean soju is great with food because yeah. it's got sweetness and it's got flavor profile that you can almost use it kind of like a palate cleanser um, and then you just smash beers the whole night and it's kind of the, the jump between the two and deal with the headache in the morning. Um, no, sorry, that was my emails coming through. That's where there might be a weird little chime sort of coming up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who it was that I was talking to. Maybe two or three nights ago, we were talking about her time in Korea. And um, she was just saying it was unlike she'd never be able to pick up the way that she was when she was living there. Um, it was just so chaotic. And, and she had a hell of a good time. It sounds like they know how to live. Um, I got to try and convince the, the team to send me up there at some point to do market research. <laughs> market research and deliver research yeah, yeah uh, it's amazing man it's absolutely fantastic I love South Korea I miss Asia in general I've been trying to get back it's very difficult for me to to travel just like many other people um, so we're, I think we're all pretty much stuck where we are for now unfortunately and I wonder what Christmas is going to be like I, I yeah. don't know if it's going to feel like Christmas yeah I mean you know I, it's been I can't remember the last time I went back to Australia for Christmas. I've always, I don't know if it's the, the little sort of hanging bartender in the back of my head that goes, nah, do an orphan's Christmas wherever you are in the world. Uh, and it's, you know, you go out with your mates and you sink a bunch of beers and have a good time and sort of celebrate the fact that you aren't going to be with your family. Um, but Christmas in Australia is pretty awful because it's usually around 40 degrees on Christmas day where I'm from oh, yeah. uh, and it's bone dry and dusty. And uh, I end up telling the same story to every member of my family 12 times over. Um, but Singapore is in a great position at the moment where they're discussing opening an exclusive travel bubble with Hong Kong. Um, so I'm hoping, I was just reading the news earlier on today that uh, it looks like they might be announcing that to be launched in November. So if that comes to fruition, then I'm going to shoot up and um, spend Christmas with my mate uh, who's conveniently Scottish and loves a dram or two. Uh, so we're, uh, we're looking at potentially booking a junk and doing the Hong Kong Harbor booze cruise for Christmas, um, which will be 
definitely not sponsored by Glenfiddich, but there'll be a little bit of that floating around for sure. <laughs> Speaking of which, you've got, well, we've got a bottle of 12 years, which you, you said would be the best to, to try. Um, and we've, we've drank, we're no strangers to alcohol. Obviously this whole show kind of is focused around alcohol. And so we've, we've had quite a few, we've, we've had Jameson, we've done, um, uh, Johnny Walker, we've done, um, a bunch of other ones too, but a bunch of other whiskeys. And, uh, I'd like to know what your thoughts are. Cause obviously you're the expert. So what is it about this bottle that you, you was your was your reason for recommending it and and can you run us through a little bit of what you do with with whiskey when you talk about it because i'm super interested yeah so i mean um when when you first hit me up about this i did sort of dive in to see i guess more the the spectrum of who you'd had come on uh if number one if it was any of my mates i was going to listen to it so that i could talk shit about him when i got on here um but more importantly it was actually about what kind of spirits you'd actually had come through so i saw that you had jameson and uh, and a few others. So I figured this is a good one just for people that may not have, uh, I guess, gone headfirst into the whiskey industry coming out of Scotland. So uh, this is currently the world's highest selling single malt whiskey. Um, so we actually get to hold the crown on a few things. So we're the largest distillery in Scotland, um, up at Glenfiddich. And people go, well, hang on a second. Johnny Walker's from, from uh, Scotland as well, which is correct, but they're not a distiller. Um, we, we have the largest plot for a distillery coming out of Scotland itself, producing Scotch whiskey. Um, and we've got, I mean, we've got other sites all around as well, but this is a really cool one because out of our entire portfolio, this sells more than anything else because number one price point's amazing, but it's also from we're, we're based up in Speyside. So Scotland has, I think it's technically five regions and one territory, um, Someone's probably going to have a problem with me saying it like that, but uh, it's just making sure that we acknowledge that there is actually six uh, areas that they produce whiskey in. So if you go kind of do like a, a counterclockwise movement around, we've got the Lowlands, which is a big sort of um, plot down uh, below. Uh, some really cool brands out of there, but it's not very saturated. I think the last time I had a look, there was like six active distilleries and it's a huge, like, you know, several times Singapore um, in, in the Lowlands. Uh, then you go up into the highlands, which is, you know, even bigger than that. It's almost double the land mass of the lowlands. And again, you've got really limited numbers in there. And then Speyside is this tiny little cutout that is in the north uh, east of Scotland. So Scotland has this weird arm that kind of comes up. You've got uh, Norway and Finland and whatnot over here. And there's this kind of wedge that's been cut out. Speyside is this little sort of bite that is, uh, is taken out of there. But in that tiny little plot, uh, you've got more than half the active distilleries in Scotland uh, working up there. So to give people an idea of the company that we keep uh, on our grounds, we've got Glenfiddich, the Balvenie and Canimby. Uh, but just around the corner and down the road from us, you've got brands like McAllen, you've got Kregelicki, Abelauer, uh, Glenlivet's not too far away. Singleton has their Dufftown distillery at the bottom of the hill from Glenfiddich. Um, Mortlux down the road, that's where our uh, founder, uh, William Grant, actually first cut his teeth in the industry. Like everyone's on everyone's doorstep. So it's a really important region when it comes to looking at single malt whiskey, not just because of scotch, but you then look at the, the Japanese industry took cues from the production of single malt scotch whiskey uh, and, and blending as well. 
it's um yeah that's why this particular bottle is like the essence of what Glenfiddich is why is it that they're all located more or less in that area is it the ground uh it's a really really good question because a few people have scratched their heads there's there's quite a few things that have come in so uh depending on how nerdy you really want to get into it scottish tax history is this massive thing so it was a few hundred years i think it was about 150 years was the tax wars when it came to whiskey so um the taxing forces were uh, basically going through and this is why the highlands doesn't actually have a lot of st- uh, distilleries in it anymore on average in that period they were going between i think it was 1500 and 14000 uh, distilleries and i'm going to put the air quotes in distilleries were closed down uh every single year so like a huge number but that was like the guy that had a pot this big that had a little flame under it and he was pouring like you know basically some pretty average beer in there distilling a spirit of sorts and that was technically classified as distillery so in 1823 is when we saw the tax man finally go, okay, they're not going away. We've tried fighting this battle for, for a very long time now. Why don't we create a specific alcohol tax for it and basically legalize it where you can get a license, so on and so forth. So the first registered uh, Scotch whiskey distillery license went to Glenlivet. Um, like Johnny Walker is currently celebrating 200 years of their company being around, but the actual Johnny Walker uh, brand that I guess we know is theoretically established uh, as, a, as a whiskey company because he was originally a grocer um, for that stuff. Sorry, I got really into the history thing there. No, 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 but, that's actually really interesting. But um, if, if you factor things like that in, that's where I guess the cultural impact that allowed them, because the Highlands is a pretty mountainous area. So if the guys were based down closer to the monarchy down in, you know, in uh, England, they wouldn't have wanted to try and cross through the Highland Passes too often because number one, it's a pretty barbaric place to, to be up there. Uh, I feel like everyone's probably watched Braveheart by this point. Um, right. So this is a little bit after that, but it was still that kind of pretty rough and rugged uh, culture. And space side is the northern side of that. So they had shipping entry because of that sort of wedge coming through where they could get uh, you know different ingredients and whatnot brought in. Um, but on top of that, one of the things that does get brought in through that wedge is a trade wind that comes all the way up from Mexico that blows warm air uh, into Scotland. So during winter, uh, it, as I said just before 2010, we had warehouses collapse because it snowed so heavily um, that the weight of that actually pushed these roofs down. And these they're built like airport hangars, like they're massive. Um, but then when I was there in, in August of last year, I think it was, uh, it was like 32 degrees out and basically I should have just set fire to my massive Arctic jacket that I took thinking I was going to be freezing. Um, so this warm air coming in, what that really does, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It was when there was that heat wave in Paris and London where like Paris got up to like 40, 42 or 43 degrees or something. And, um, that would have not smelled so pleasant. No. Damn. Okay. I didn't know. I didn't even know Scotland can get that hot. It's freezing right now there. Yeah, it turns out the Scottish didn't either because they were just bitching and moaning about how they're all about to melt. And I was like, yeah, all right, settle down. This is just a standard day in Singapore. But um, I mean, if, if we get again into the, I guess, technical side of that. So when you put whiskey into a cask, and I'm sure that other guys you've spoken to have talked about the angel share, how the, the cask itself will breathe liquid in because just it's straight physics where when you put 
uh, heat next to something, it'll expand. And when you put cold on it, it's going to contract. And so that's where we see the um, interaction with oak and liquid happening. That's where we pull our tannins and our, our vanillins and all the, the flavor profiles that we want. But that's also where we see evaporation happen. So that sweet spot in Speyside gets this beautiful trade wind that comes around and hits it. So we do get a warmer summer up there than you do a little bit lower. And it's a crazy thing to think of because we're almost on the same uh, parallel as Oslo and Norway. So uh, like when it's cold, it's, it's bitter. And when it's hot, it's, uh, it's actually quite sweaty and, and gross for making whiskey. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole ton of, of science behind this that I think spans well beyond the parameters of this conversation, but it's really fascinating to know just a little bit like about how, all of this started and I suppose that's what you're really good at. Right. And what about this? Um, so then what about this 12? Cause we've got, we've got it here. So what about this 12 year whiskey? Like what is, what's the, 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 the kind of way you would like kind of taste a whiskey and kind of understand how it's different from others. What are we looking for when we drink this? So uh, with the 12, this is, uh, I think it even says in our bottle, our original 12, it used to be our signature 12. Uh, it's essentially, and I'm going to actually cue back to tequila talk from uh, earlier on, um, just because it's a really great way that my uncle taught me about um, when I was tasting spirits. So this is the entry into our entire portfolio. Uh, we've, we've got some that are no age statements. In fact, I've got one that I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but what this is, is quintessential Speyside whiskey. So uh, where I was talking about the regions before, Lowlands, Highlands, we've got Speyside, the islands, and we've got Isla, which is where people get a little confused. And then we've got Campbelltown down the bottom. Each of those regions has a very specified, uh, I guess, traditional or original flavor. Uh, Speyside is known for sweet, fruity, and oaky. So that's, that's what we tend to look for if we're going to drink anything that's coming out of Speyside. For the most part, it's not a regulation that your whiskey has to be along those lines. Right. But if we're looking at fruity, uh, we do a 72-hour fermentation uh, with, this, with actually all of our new make spirit. So what that will do is deliver uh, really fresh kind of green fruit flavors like apples and pears. So we describe it as orchard fruits. Uh, immediately on the nose, that starts to come through where it's it's got this kind of it, a sweetness, but you can tell that it's fruit driven. Um, this also has predominantly uh, ex-bourbon cask maturation. So about 85% of the bottle will spend the full 12 years or more uh, sitting in a cask that used to be um, in the US making, you know, be it, it's American whiskey of any caliber. It could be rye, corn, predominantly it's going to be bourbon because there's a lot more of those available. Um, but that's going to deliver really strong vanilla notes, but it's also a really delicate spirit. Um, and then we'll do 15% roughly uh, in Oloroso sherry cask. So the, the Spanish oak that we, we work with from the bodegas there will deliver big tannins and things like that. Uh, a lot of you know bitterness or spice, rich kind of honey notes, uh, nutty flavors, things along those lines. So that's why we only put a very small amount in is it's kind of like the bourbon cask is your main and then the sherry cask is the, the garnish um, to go on there and just add a little bit of complexity in. But this is awesome because if anyone's trying to get into whiskey from Scotland, this is a great place to start uh, because we've really got a, a four uh, flavor tasting profile. So apples and pears on the start, then we've got a sweet vanilla profile that will come in. 
uh, it follows through from that with uh, more on, on mouthfeel. It's like this nutty kind of creaminess to it. Um, still not an overly viscous whiskey. And then it finishes out with a really, really light flutter of oak. Um, like woodiness in, in spirits can uh, kind of detract people from wanting to, to participate. But this is awesome because it's flexible as well. So if you're starting out new, you can do tastings with it. This is my uh, go-to highball whiskey. I'll actually take this over literally anything else um, if I have the option to. And it's because it's got this beautiful, sweet fruit profile up front that when you stretch it with soda, it's only going to elevate that and it actually dilutes down the, the woody notes that you get from oak and things along those lines. So right. it's just, again, I'm, I'm Australian, so price points are always going to be important to me. Um, but it's yeah. accessibility as well. You know, you can find this pretty much anywhere on the planet. Um, which is, is always going to be really helpful. So how are you supposed to enjoy it versus how do you like to enjoy it? Or is it the same? Oh, that's a, that's a fun one. I'm actually going to jump ahead a little bit because this is a bottle thing. <laughs> I've been trying to drop the bottle. <laughs> yeah, just with a straw. Uh, no, I mean, it really comes down to the individual. You know, we always talk to people, and, and this is a question that comes up is, can you mix it with Coke? I mean, sure, you can. If that's what you're into, there's absolutely no issue. If you paid for it and it's yours, do what you, you want to rub it on the bottom of your shoes. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but you know, if that's how you enjoy it, go for gold. Um, so uh, I've got a pita, uh, which is uh, just basically a little tasting glass. Um, this is more often than not what I'll be using if I'm doing trade or consumer tasting dinners. Uh, with that said, a couple of weeks ago, I was banging out cocktails in a bar down here in Singapore um, using Glenfiddich. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, if I was in the UK right now, there's not a good chance I'd be putting ice in there. But being that we're in Singapore, I'll happily put cubes of ice in. But excuse me, that's, um, that's more because of the fact that I understand what happens when you do this. So the ice conversation is a big one for us here in, in Asia because people either get really offended by it or they tell everyone else to shut up and let them do what they want. Uh, but it comes down to a few things. So again, if you consider what I was saying with temperature impacting the liquid in the barrel, how when it's hot, it expands and when it's cold, it shrinks down. The same thing realistically happens in your glass uh, with ice going in because what it'll do is as you put that in, it'll rapidly chill and actually pulls the particles in the liquid together um, where it just condenses down. So you'll actually be able to, um, to feel that. And if you ever get curious, a super fun experiment um, that I did, a, uh, I think it was last year when I was here, I had two bottles of monkey shoulders sitting at home. And so I put one of them in my freezer. I kept one of them out. And so we then did a pour test and pouring them side by side the actual fluidity of the, the one that was in the freezer changed. And so it looked like you were pouring syrup uh, versus pouring uh, just straight whiskey. Like everything stuck together. There was no dripping. Like it was, it was a really wild thing to see. So that was a really cool way to kind of test that. And I mean, if, uh, if anyone doesn't want to wait for their bottle to freeze, you can also put it in your hands and rub it together and smell that. And that's going to give you a more aerated kind of stretched out version versus putting your nose just straight in the glass. So um, there, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, I have mates that when they drink, they hold their glass in two hands because their body temperature is going to heat it beyond the, the ambient temperature. Um, if it's me drinking just for leisure, not for work, uh, more often than not, uh, I'll be sitting on a highball. Um, I can punish them if I want to. Um, it's also, I actually genuinely enjoy the taste. Uh, I'm very specific about which whiskeys I'll have a highball with. Um, 
you know, as much as I, I really, really like peated whiskies. So um, there's companies down in Isla predominantly that produce those. The Freud, like Bullen, um, Brook Laddie makes some of my favorite whiskey on the planet um, when it comes to that big kind of peat monster stuff. But uh, if anyone tried to serve me a highball, you know, stretch that out with soda, I'm probably going to politely decline and uh, try and find a bar with, uh, you know, something from Spaceside floating around. Interesting. Well, man, I would say uh, a cheers to that. Um, Indeed. Thank you very much for explaining that. It's very, very, uh, very, very helpful to understand. And yeah, man, what's next for you? Like, you're very entrepreneurial. You did the cafe. You went into the brand ambassador gig. You've been a DJ, right? Is it a DJ? Or uh, I've been learning recently how to DJ. Yeah, my uh, one of my housemates has got a, a fun little setup that we uh, we gave a good knock to on. Uh, I think it was Saturday uh, last week. So I'm getting there. Getting there. <laughs> so so maybe that's your next uh, move. Maybe uh, someone's going to spot you and they'll be like, you know, we need some whiskey at our event. And then you did you go there and then you're like hold on you're pretty good with the decks. <laughs> We actually, um, I mean, it's funny you brought that up because uh, Glenn Fittick actually runs a, a music festival um, up at the distillery, which happens, unfortunately, it was meant to be last month. Um, and I, I still haven't actually been, which I was, I was gutted when uh, they, they sort of said they're canceling all travel plans and everything. So I knew that was going to go. But um, we've been running a festival. This would have marked the fourth year of it. So they do a pretty intense job of it. Um, it's exclusively for people that work in the F&B industry. Um, so predominantly it's going to be bartenders uh, and it's invite only. So, you know, brand ambassadors can reach out to, to anywhere. And if people want the invite from the bar industry, they can absolutely get up there, but uh, they, they go pretty hard with it. So last year, the headline was Franz Ferdinand. Um, and this was, yeah, yeah, like I, when they first said, I was like, oh, cool. It's going to be like the school battle of the bands kind of thing going on. But they really, really dug deep for this. And it's all about sort of, I guess, just rewarding and engaging, um, you know, our, our comrades in the um, bar industry with just a bunch of fun. But it's like two or three days of DJs and bands and all sorts of stuff. And it's educational seminars. And uh, there's just a lot of whiskey flying around, a lot of really good food. Um, but funny enough, there's quite a few of the, especially the Glenfiddich brand team is quite large. Um, I think currently there's 22 of us around the world um, in the brand ambassador roles, including Struan, our, uh, our global guy. But um, I think every year, maybe four or five of them will actually get up and throw sets at the, the festival. And it's like a, a highlight of the year because they actually have, you know, a crowd of a couple thousand will be up there and uh, it's full production, the whole bit. So that's why I, I said to my housemate that I've got to get a lot better on the ones and twos so I can get in there and uh, try and, you know, see if I can stick it with the big boys. Uh, bro, I've never tried. I have no idea. What about you, Brandon? Have you ever tried DJing? No, I, I don't know where I'd fucking start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a guy on, your friend, Tiger, right? And Tiger, man, I've had a lot of friends that know how to DJ. He's shown me a few things, but I just don't know shit. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I mean, we, we kind of stick to what we're good at, I suppose. But, um, bro, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving your time to this. I know you're a busy guy, so. No, it's good. Um, Any chance I have to, to open a whiskey uh, before four o'clock is a, is a good one for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>